Hello, and welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology board review podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda Redfern and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education and not for diagnosing any eye problem. So each episode, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. And Andrew, what are we talking about this time? Today, you've selected a fine vintage of colobomas for us to discuss. And may I say, before we get into it, Dr. Redfern, it's a pleasure to be finally working one-on-one with you. I know, it's a little bit weird, right? Yeah, we haven't had this particular combo of you and me yet, but uh, might as well as we start up what I'm going to call season two of Eyes for Ears. I think it's more like phase two of Eyes for Ears life, you know, the postgraduate life. Well, that's fair, yeah, because now at this point, we're all finally settled into our uh, jobs as attendings, and you and I have been doing it for a couple years already now. Oh my gosh, it doesn't feel that way. But back to the episode. So what is a coloboma? Um, A coloboma is pretty much just interrupted or incomplete embryologic development of the eye and kind of what that leads to when that embryology gets arrested and you become an adult anyway, or a kid or an adult. So it sounds like we need to go back to the very beginning, which is embryology. And I wish there was a sound effect for this, like the the horror movie sound effect. Embryology was never my favorite topic for OCAP. I, I, I'll work on an audio hit for you. <laughs> Something creepy. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe you'll put it in right there. But uh, the the challenge and the horror of this, especially in an auditory format, is we're going to have to pick our words very carefully to paint the picture of how this all looks. Oh my gosh. That's a lot of pressure, but let's start with, how about we start with the fifth week of gestation? All the way back, those <laughs> rosy days. So I'll, I'll start and you can uh, paint from there. So around the fifth week of gestation or around day 28 is when we start to see the earliest signs of eye development. And what we see is that the surface ectoderm forms these little lens placodes. And at the same time, the neural ectoderm, which is just adjacent, starts to form the optic vesicles. And it is when these two are forming and they get close to each other and finally touch that the vesicle invaginates and becomes what is known as the optic cup, which is, which is a bilayered cup. So the inside is your neural retina and the outer side is what becomes your uh, RPE. Okay. Take over. <laughs> so if I'm trying to make a metaphor out of all of that, it's like you got your two layers of ectoderm, surface ectoderm and neural ectoderm. Your neural ectoderm will become your optic vesicle. Once you kind of punch it, imagine that there's like a ball and you're punching it and that, that punch forms a dimple on the uh, one side. And that dimpling turns this thing into a bilayered cup. Um, eventually, the other part, the surface ectoderm, which wasn't involved in this, invaginates too. But I'm not sure we haven't we've gotten there quite yet, have we? Uh, I think we're about there because they're both invaginating okay. around the same time. All right. 
So basically, you've got this ball of tissue. You've punched it to make this dimple, <coughs> and that's going to create the optic cup as this uh, bilayer forms. But I think the concept of the fissure too, Amanda, is going to be important here. The fissure, you had a better way of describing this, I think. It's like uh, my way is this punch that uh, creates the dimple in this thing that's invaginating. It's like it blew out the bottom of the ball too. So this uh, pit also ends up with this fissure at the bottom. Yeah. I don't know that that's really a good description. I guess I've always thought of the fissure as being there. So it's not a complete... A cup. It's like a cup with a little channel at the bottom of it. And this channel is really important because that's where all the other stem cells come through to form the different parts of the eyes later on. Like you have to have a channel for, you know, the uh, the central retinal artery to migrate through and then the inner contents that will become all the pieces, the iris, the vitreous, all that stuff. So after all the goodies migrate in, that's when the fissure closes or starts to close. And it starts closing at the equator of the eye. And then from there, it zips forward and backward or zips anteriorly and posteriorly. And it's that incomplete closure of the fissure that leads to an anterior or a posterior coloboma or both. And... The anterior colobomas are the most common. The posterior colobomas are less common. Uh, probably a good thing because, you know, if your uh, posterior structures are affected, like your retina or your optic nerve, that's much more visually significant than potentially the anterior structures. Another important note that you'll be expected to know on your OCAPs is that the colobomas are typically inferior nasal because that's where the fissure is. And so that's where we expect to see colobomas on an exam. And if it's not in that location, you should have a little question mark there in your mind. In really severe cases where you have really terrible uh, closure, you can actually get a cyst nearby. And that's where you get this colobomatous microphthalmos. Fun fact, in 20% of the cases of colobomatous microphthalmos, they actually inherited it genetically. So it's an autosomal dominant trait, which I, I didn't know before this episode. Uh, not, not fun to have this run in your family, I suppose. Um, no, but definitely it's not. It's also the kind of thing where I feel like the book learning with this whole topic is a little, feels almost like a different universe than what you really see with it in uh clinical experience because this stuff usually comes with so many other de de defects of embryo embryogenesis that it's not the it's often not the only thing wrong <laughs> uh, there can be other structural defects and um, that's part of what we'll talk about but maybe I'm skipping ahead too far because first before we talk about the different combinations of defects we can even just talk about the different types of colobomas do you want to do anterior to posterior or posterior to anterior? Let's do anterior to posterior, because that's more common. Spoken like an anterior segment surgeon. And yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I can start with the iris ones, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. So an iris coloboma is just going to look like a keyhole defect of the iris. Uh, sometimes it has a few different appearances depending on how things kind of get 
developed around, but sometimes it'll look like a keyhole, sometimes it'll look like a light bulb, other times it'll look more like an inverted teardrop, but you kind of get the picture. It's sort of this round shape that's more uh, peaked at one side or tapered to one side. Um, usually, again, these are going to be infranasal, like most uh, colobomas will tend to be, but atypical ones uh, may not be infranasal, and those are thought to result from fibrovascular remnants of the anterior hyoid system in the pupillary membrane. Um, does that take care of most of the things where irises, iris colobomas? Yeah. I think so. We have true iris coloboma and what I now think of as pseudo iris coloboma. Mm. And judge the distinction mostly by where it is and for a nasal or not. And then speaking of pseudo, let's talk about the lens. So lens colobomas are actually misnomers. It's not a piece of the lens that is missing, but rather the zonular fibers are missing. And that creates a notch in the lens at that location where it's missing. And it appears on our slit lamp exam almost like something just never developed in that area. But it's not the lens, it's the zonular fibers or lack thereof. And these again are going to be occurring in that inferonasal location. Um, it's one of those things that when I read about it, I immediately thought, gosh, I really don't want to do cataract surgery on those patients. Have you done one? Mm, not yet. Uh, but I think part of that terror is like, well, this, this genetic or this embryologic development didn't go right. What else might be uh, a surprise waiting for me as I enter this eye? You always worry about the zonular support, but it's like, what else could this gift box give me? Yes. So that's just one thing that if you ever encounter one of these in real life, just think real hard and have good surgical planning and be very careful. Be a ninja in the eye, as our one of our old uh, cataract mentors would say. <laughs> <laughs> and then oh, one last note on location of the lens. If it's a bad enough loss of zonules, you can actually have superotemporal displacement of the lens, but it's not always present. That makes sense, at least um, conceptually to me, Amanda, that if I'm missing like zonules in the infranasal uh, quadrant, that the, the zonules present on the other side would just pull them in the other direction, unopposed. I think that's how it yep. works. That's the way I visualize it. Okay. Shall we move on to the uh, posterior kinds of colobomas? Yeah. All right. Would you like to take retina in place of our dear Ben Young? <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. You, we could have had a three host cameo. Um, but for the retina, uh, you, this is the main thing that is really going to be quite visually significant, especially if it's close to the macular region. So to that point, your acuity with a retinal coloboma is totally going to depend on how the fovea is involved. There is also an increased risk of retinal detachment. I don't think you're expected to know that increased risk, but I have seen in other sources like iWiki a 40% increased risk. I think it was up to 40%, mm. but I can't say I looked at the papers themselves. No. So I don't think you have to know that, but just to give you a general idea, like what you might have to consider as like screening protocols for how often that can happen. 
both of us could share optic nerve, but heck, the neuro-ophthalmologist wins, I think. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> I mean, I would share any day with you. So the optic nerve can also, ha- uh, of course, have a coloboma. And depending on how bad it is, you could have normal visual acuity to absolutely terrible visual acuity. Um, there's a wide variety of appearances again, because there's a range of how, how bad it can be. So it can be anything as mild as a really, really deep cupping that is like the deepest physiologic cupping you've ever seen. And you label them as a glaucoma suspect and you watch them. And then it can be as severe as you look at the nerve and you're like, what the heck is that? It's large. It's, it's excavated. You're not quite sure if that little piece of pinkish, orangish tissue is the nerve or what, because it's just a sliver. So there's really a wide variety of appearances. It's hard to do it justice in audio format, but I really recommend taking a look at some of the pictures in the NeuroBCSC. They have great photographs and then just looking online. And I, yeah, anytime you see a weird looking optic nerve, I think it's great to compare with other people's pictures. Yeah, clinical recognition of this is actually a little more difficult to teach than other much more patterned things, much more consistently patterned things like... Dr. Redfern can tell you, hey, this is morning glory. This is what this optic disc looks like. But, and it's usually going to look the same, topless discs, same, but colobomatous discs, anything could, anything could go. Like it could look like whatever. Okay. Now we get on to the last structure. This is technically. Redheaded stepchild of (laughs) This is anterior of anterior, and it is. It just, it's which one of these does not look like the other because it's the eyelid. And it actually has nothing to do with that embryology that we just said earlier. So what's wrong with the eyelid? Uh, there's, there's a notch taken out of it. And usually that's in the middle of the upper eyelid, which if that happens, it's not, uh, not usually that associated with many things. But if the coloboma in the eyelid is in the lower eyelid instead of the upper one, those lower eyelid colobomas are often associated with more congenital deformities uh, or embryologic uh, misadventures, especially Goldenhar syndrome. We'll talk about that pretty soon. That's an excellent lead in. But before we go on, I just say, you know, RBCSC doesn't go too much into the pathophysiology of facial clefts, but this eyelid coloboma just falls into that general category of facial clefts. So you're not expected to understand that pathophysiology. Okay. Syndromes. So there's a lot of different uh, patterned syndromes. of, And I, I always have this uh, hatred in my heart for learning syndromes because it's just honestly nobody understands pathophysiology of these diseases so they don't call them diseases they just like yeah here's a collection of random things that all happen together and we'll call it a syndrome which means they're the hardest to memorize because that's all you can do memorize random combinations of things at the very least uh, some of them have helpful acronyms and that's the first of the three syndromes we'll talk about um, charge syndrome, which is itself just an acronym. 
anyone who's doing ophthalmic consults was probably immediately thinking about this and thinking that it was coming because those charge consults. Yeah, you are probably one of the uh, handful of ophthalmic hospitalists out there, at least part-time, right, Amanda? Yeah, although it's growing, highly recommend, but we'll talk about that another time. So CHARGE syndrome is an acronym, and it stands for coloboma, heart defects. I always (laughs) say this wrong. I don't know how to say this word. I think it's coanal atresia. Forgive Conal, me if I said that choanal, wrong. Choanal, um, the A is the part that goes with the acronym, the atresia part. Retardation, parentheses mental, genitourinary abnormalities, and ear abnormalities. So I think just about, you know, getting consulted on these patients on the inpatient side, but really the important part here is that if you see a kid who comes into clinic with a coloboma, they need to undergo some general evaluation for these things, including a heart evaluation because they could have heart defects. Oftentimes we're not the first person noticing something's wrong, but if you are the first person to see that there's a coloboma and they have not had a charge workup, you need to be in communication with their primary doctors about coordinating this. My my next little mnemonic for trying to remember this combination of syndromic things doesn't come close to a typical Ben Young mnemonic, sorry. But I think of eyes, ears, and noses. Not quite your typical ear, uh, ENT doc, but maybe what ENT used to be, because ophthalmology used to be a part of ENT. So eyes, ears, and noses, plus heart problems and uh, mental cognitive delays and urinary issues. So that second half is the harder part to remember. Golden har, for whatever reason, I've always had an easier time remembering, but maybe for a very dumb reason. I'll uh, see how Amanda goes about it, maybe for less dumb reasons. (laughs) I actually only remember it because I I saw a golden heart patient early on in a pediatric ophthalmology rotation, and it always stuck with me. We were... um, uh, we were addressing their limbal dermoids. So before we get into that, let's talk about what is golden heart. So it's only actually part of a spectrum of problems with your eyes, your ears, and your spinal cord. Uh, spinal column, sorry. <laughs> uh, spinal bones, I should say. Uh, but all those things together... You can otherwise say oculo-auriculo-vertebral spectrum. So uh, this is one of those things. Other things on that spectrum include hemifacial microsomia and Treacher-Collins syndrome. But golden is what we're talking about on that spectrum right now. Um, usually for these syndromic things, sometimes you have to remember the uh, inheritance pattern, but golden is sporadic. Usually. So... As Andrew said, this is part of a spectrum where hemifacial microsomia is the mild end of the spectrum. And so as you go along the spectrum, you're gaining more anomalies. So in golden har, they present with hemifacial microsomia. It can be unilateral or bilaterals. And then they can have micro 
Odia. I'm totally mispronouncing that, but a small ear and the classic ear tag. And then in terms of eye abnormalities that go along with it, of course, we're talking about colobomas. And the one that they typically have is an eyelid coloboma, but they can also have other eye problems or eye findings. And that would be epibulbar dermoids and dermolipomas. These are typically inferotemporal. And then one other finding is Duane retraction syndrome. This is not a part of the syndrome necessarily, but patients with golden heart syndrome are much more likely to have Duane retraction syndrome than the general population. So now that Dr. Redfern has told you all the useful actual medical information, I'll tell you my stupid way of trying to remember this. Um, I am a child of the 90s, watched a lot of Power Rangers cartoons, not cartoons, I guess they were live action, weren't they? Um, and that old character in the original American version, Goldar, that uh, dude, alien dude who dressed up in like a weird suit of golden armor, he had red eyes and he the helmet mask thing he wore had some cool kind of ear stuff around it so for the life of me this is how i've remembered golden heart just like those big red eyes kind of made me think easily of epibulbar dermoids anyway and the ear uh sort of jewelry <laughs> made me think of ear stuff all the time uh so that's the first time i've admitted to anybody that uh, my dumb mnemonics uh you're revealing your age andrew i know i know <laughs> okay last syndrome that i wanted to squeeze in here was papillorenal syndrome which is the combination of optic nerve coloboma and renal failure due to renal hypoplasia this is related to a pax2 not pax6 but a pax2 gene mutation so I have to admit that there is some controversy over whether it is actually a true coloboma in this syndrome versus a primary optic nerve dysplasia. And this gets back to what we talked about earlier, that sometimes funny and really anomalous looking nerves are really hard to distinguish and tell exactly what went wrong to create this l relatively large excavated nerve or anomalous nerve. And I think that the take home point would be is that if you think that they have an optic nerve coloboma, you should be considering a renal panel to check their function because they could have papillorenal syndrome. And uh, this is really, really pedantic. But to emphasize Amanda mentioning the PAX2 gene mutation, I mean, we're so uh, geared towards thinking PAX6 all the time for these kinds of embryologic uh, misdeveloped Feature uh, syndrome things, but the BCSC does go out of its way to say PAX2 for this papillary renal syndrome is what's the more important uh, gene. So, for what it's worth, in case you get a real unfair test question or something one day, no, they wouldn't do that. That's cruel. <laughs> okay, you've seen you, we've seen some cruelty, right? <laughs> I must have blocked it out. <laughs> So I think we've covered everything at this point that we were planning on covering. Should we do a quick summary? Sure. Which of us should do it? Let's see. Both of us? Let's do, let's do it together. I'll start with embryology, though. The take-home point is that colobomas arise from incomplete closure of the optic vesicle fissure. And so you can get anterior or posterior colobomas, typically. 
And that leads us into types of colobomas. What are the types? The uh, incomplete closures can lead to iris, lens, retinal, or optic nerve colobomas. Eyelid colobomas are totally different, not related to the embryology we talked about. All these things can show up together in different syndromes, including three we talked about today. Charge syndrome. Golden heart and papillorenal, with uh, charge being eye, nose, and ear issues, plus uh, cognitive delay, genitourinary issues, and heart defects. Golden heart mostly being eye, eyelid, and ear issues, but it's part of a spectrum that can also involve uh, spinal column issues too. Uh, papillorenal syndrome, a combination of optic nerve colobomas and renal failure. Well, thank you all for tuning into this episode of Eyes for Ears. Hope that it was helpful and uh, stay tuned for more episodes. We're coming back. Yes, we're rolling again. We're rolling. Take care, everybody. Oh, yeah, rolling. That's a better way of saying it. <laughs> Bye. Bye.